Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of execution and child murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Janet led a group of American tourists along the hall and toward an open cell. As she walked, she announced that they were now entering the original part of Bago Road Jail. This, she explained, was where the prison's gallows were located. A chorus of oohs and ahs came from the tour group. Janet never understood why people loved the macabre. She thought it was perverse, but it was her job to tell them about it. She was a history buff, and truthfully, she'd rather be at a real museum in Brisbane than an abandoned jail. Walking through the same dark concrete walls as a bunch of historical murderers made her days feel a little grim. She sometimes tried to picture the inmates as good people at heart, whose time there had changed them for the better. But picturing good people locked away in this place made her even sadder. She stood back as the group peered into the cell, she could hear chuckles as the Americans read the graffiti inside. There were some pretty intense things on there, written by former prisoners. Someone had literally drawn a stick figure bathing in blood and written bloodbath. The tourists always loved that. But shock value wasn't really Janet's thing. She preferred hopeful messages. Nearby, a man lingered, staring at her intently. He was stocky and looked like he could be in his 20s. He wore a blue-collared shirt and jeans. Janet had noticed him before, so she turned from the group and asked him if he needed anything. But he shook his head. He spoke in a low, syrupy voice to say he was about to get exactly what he needed. Janet was creeped out. She smiled uneasily and turned back to the group, but they were gone. There was no sign of them anywhere. They just vanished. It was Janet and the man, alone. Janet felt cold hands grab her neck from behind. The man whispered in her ear that what he needed was another soul. And she was lucky number three. Welcome to Haunted Places a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Bago Road Jail, a 19th century Australian jail with a malevolent history, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll meet a child killer that can't be stopped. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A busy highway runs through the Brisbane suburb of Dutton Park, where hospitals and office buildings are plentiful. But one structure stands out amid the mundane, a massive Victorian-style red brick complex with a towering lookout. At one time, it was one of the most iconic sites in Queensland, Australia. If you see it, you've arrived at Bago Road Jail. Bago Road began as a nickname for the Brisbane prison. It was dubbed Bago because back in the day, the road that led to it often got wet or boggy after it rained. Meanwhile, jail, spelled G-A-O-L, is an older British word for jail. The complex itself is made up of a perimeter wall encircling a series of brick buildings and a guard tower. Its original structure, eventually called the Number One Division, opened in 1883 as a holding jail for prisoners serving short sentences. But after Bago Road installed a gallows, it turned into a site of executions. Before capital punishment was abolished in Queensland in 1922, the Bago Road gallows hanged 42 criminals between 1883 and 1913. During this time, the makeup of the inmates there changed from nonviolent offenders to some of the most unsavory criminals in Australian history, some of whom still call Bago Road Jail their home. Walter could smell the iron in the air as he followed a group of policemen along the wooded trail. A constable gripped his arm tightly, like he was scared Walter would run. But Walter wouldn't run. He wanted to see her again. Little Lily, soul number one. A dark shadow danced beside him, flitting around the trees that lined the trail. The devil had been by his side for months now, whispering Walter's mission in his ear each morning when he woke. You must collect souls, it told him. Four of them. Innocent souls only, for the devil already had enough rotten ones. Too many rotten souls had made him weak. So weak that he needed Walter's help to find the innocents. Just four the devil had said, and then his strength would return, and Walter could have whatever he wanted, even eternal life. Walter's family had died around him one by one, his mother of consumption when he was young, his father in a horse riding accident, then his brother and sister. They perished just months apart from the plague that ravaged the Australian countryside. He had seen so much death, it was enough to make anyone want to stop living. But not Walter. The finality of death made him sick. The weakness it indicated was enough to make him squirm. He feared death. And more than anything, he never wanted it to happen to him. Walter had been scared at first of what the devil asked him, but he was soon convinced of how important his mission was. If he succeeded, he'd never have to fear dying again. So Walter was determined to deliver four innocent souls to Satan in exchange for salvation. 
Yesterday morning, the devil had given him the name of his first soul, Lily, his boss's young daughter. She was sweet, pure, perfect for the devil. The thought made him sad, but better her than him. And so, Walter had led the girl into the woods and cut her throat. She collapsed to the ground with a surprised gasp, and Walter gently thanked her. Because of her death, Walter was one step closer to never experiencing it for himself. It had gone smoothly. Then, Lily's father called the police. Suddenly, the bloodhound whined, and Walter could see a white sheet covering a small lump up ahead. He'd killed her yesterday, but the little girl's blood still smelled fresh. He could hear Lily's father sniffling behind him. Walter felt his pain. He, too, had felt the sharp sting of grief when his family passed. But he shook the thought away. The devil had told him that empathy might stop him from his mission. Walter wouldn't let that happen. The police led him to the body and peeled the sheet back. Lily's mouth still hung open, her eyes wide from her last moments of horrified confusion. The group of policemen shuffled uncomfortably. Walter glanced at the shadow swirling beside him. He couldn't carry out the devil's mission in prison. So he looked at the constable and said he didn't know her. Walter felt Lily's father grab him from behind. The grief-stricken man screamed, telling Walter he knew it was him, and that Walter should kill him too, so he could join his daughter. Walter snorted. This man thought the devil would want him. A chuckle bubbled up in Walter's chest, and he couldn't stop it from pouring out of his mouth. He laughed and laughed and laughed. The hands on his arm tightened, and he soon felt cold metal encircle his wrists. He looked down in confusion. His hands were bound together by handcuffs. They were arresting him. Panic surged through his body. How could he collect innocent souls in jail? How could he earn his salvation? He frantically searched for the devil's shadow and relaxed when he saw it was still at his side, oscillating in the air like a smoky cloud. Walter heard the devil's voice say, not to worry, he had a plan. Soon, Walter was lying in his cell. Fleas swarmed his ankles, but he was calm. Satan would save him so that he could finish what he'd started. He didn't know how or when, just that the devil would come. The knowledge kept him warm, even as the painless windows let in the cold chill of winter. Weeks passed like that, then months, until one day, two guards retrieved Walter from his cell, and he was led toward the upper level of A-Wing. There, another group of guards waited on the gantry. A platform sat at its far end, with a large trap door in the floor, and above that, a noose dangled in the air. They'd reached the gallows. Doubt tickled the back of Walter's mind, he was so close to death, and the devil still hadn't come to save him. He thought he'd be free by now. He stood on the trap door and felt the heavy weight of the rope settle around his neck. His pulse quickened with each passing moment that the devil didn't appear. 
Walter heard the executioner ask if he had any last words, but his mouth had gone dry. He slowly realized that he'd been lied to. The devil wasn't going to save him. He was a fool to think that he wasn't replaceable. The devil didn't need Walter specifically. He just needed a servant, and a dead one wasn't useful. For the first time since Satan had come to him, Walter felt that familiar fear return, the fear of dying. Tears stung his eyes, and a moan burst from his lips. He suddenly screamed. He tried to avoid death, but it had come for him regardless. Then, the executioner pulled his lever. Walter wailed in terror as he plunged through the trapdoor. He could see the ground rushing up to meet him until the rope jerked him to a stop. His scream cut off sharply, and an electric agony shot through his body as his neck snapped. But then, Walter suddenly found himself standing up on the platform again. He was at the edge of the trapdoor. He looked down and saw a body swinging below his feet. His body. Walter started to shake. He was dead, but also not. Walter felt a warmth around his torso. The dark shadow of the devil had returned. It swirled around him, telling Walter that out in the world there were plenty of innocent souls to pluck for Satan's hungering belly. But in the prison, the darkest of places, there were very few. And that made those souls all the sweeter. Their rareness was what the devil craved, their brightness in the dark. A delicacy. Walter cried, shaking. But what would he get in return, he asked. He was dead now. The chance at eternal life Satan had promised him was gone. The devil told Walter that he still had a job to do. And just because he was dead didn't mean he couldn't do it. In fact, if Walter succeeded in his collection, the devil might return him to the world of the living. Walter was so relieved that he felt a joyful cackle burst out of him. The laugh grew until he was almost shouting. He might have died, but it wasn't final yet. He didn't have to evaporate into nothing, as long as he could find the final three innocent souls. Then he could live forever. The last inmate to be executed at Bago Road Jail was a 23-year-old man named Ernest Austin. Austin had been charged with slitting the throat of 11-year-old Ivy Alexandra Mitchell, who went missing on June 8, 1913. Her body was later found by her father, a few miles away from the family's farm just outside of Brisbane. Many say Austin was at peace when he stood at the gallows and apologized for his crime. But the jail's inmates claim to have heard Austin laughing wildly until the moment he was killed. Some even said they could hear his laughter echoing through the prison at night, long after he'd been executed. For this reason, many wondered if maybe Austin didn't actually pass on. Rumor has it that he was on a mission to collect souls for the devil, and that when he died, his task still needed to be completed. So perhaps he remained at Bago Road Jail, trapped. 
until he fulfilled his end of the deal. Coming up, a young girl visits Bago Road, never to return. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast Network. The Vatican is one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world, but it's also a powerful institution. Its unique history full of secrecy. This Easter, my show Conspiracy Theories looks deep into the church's past to uncover how it became what it is today. Starting April 5th, our new four-part miniseries, Mysteries of the Vatican, dives in to examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories surrounding this mysterious organization. From the church's sordid rise to power, to prophetic visions, and even assassination attempts. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories, to hear Mysteries of the Vatican. New episodes air every Monday and Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the 1920s, the former women's section of Bago Road Jail was repurposed. It was cleared out for the incoming male inmates from another jail and renamed the Number 2 Division. By this time, the prison had already made history for its dozens of executions, but its large population of long-serving inmates gave it the notorious reputation as a so-called lifer home for Australia's most horrific criminals. Conditions at the jail were notoriously terrible, Inmates would spend nearly all day in their cells, which were cramped and crowded. In the early days, the windows had no panes, only bars, leaving the prisoners open to wind and rain. And in many parts of the jail, bathrooms and running water were non-existent, leaving prisoners with nothing but waste cans to defecate in. But for some in the jail, the living conditions were the least of their worries. They were far more concerned about the dead. Lynette self-consciously smoothed the creases on her T-skirt and checked her appearance in her compact mirror. She was grateful she looked far older than 15. The last thing she needed was someone questioning her as an unaccompanied minor. It may be 1952, but this archaic place was clearly still living in the 20s, and Lynette wasn't about to let anything stop her from seeing her father, Horace. Her dad was her entire world. She snapped the compact shut and took a deep breath. Then she followed the two other visitors through the jail's front gate. Its heavy iron doors had required two guards to open them, and the gate's red archway felt like a doorway into hell. Lynette's mom had died long ago, so it had always been just her and Horace. 
she couldn't believe it when the police stormed into their house and led him away in handcuffs. And she certainly hadn't believed it when they told her he was a murderer. And today, five years later, she still didn't. Now, she lived with her auntie Nina. Nina had told Lynette repeatedly what a scoundrel Horace was. She also told Lynette that Horace didn't want her to visit. You don't belong there, Nina would say. Then she'd throw out Elvis's new album to drown out any of Lynette's protests or questions. But Lynette knew her auntie was lying. Lynette was Horace's favorite person, and she knew he would want to see her. With no money and her aunt refusing to take her, Lynette had gotten a job at a diner to save up for the bus fare to the prison. It took months, but finally she had enough. She'd slipped out of the house early that morning at the crack of dawn. Almost three hours later, here she was, walking into Bago Road Jail. She imagined her father's face when he saw her. He'd wrap her in his arms, whisper in her ear that she was his little girl and that he was so glad she'd come. The thought made tears spring to her eyes. A crow screeched overhead as Lynette made her way past the gatehouse and into the courtyard. She'd been instructed to go to number two division where Horace was. The compound was massive with old red brick buildings. They stood like immovable giants. Barbed wire lined the top of the wall. She shivered at the thought of her father trapped here innocent. Lynette walked nervously into a holding room. There were two other visitors, and she took an empty seat at the far side. Fluorescent lights buzzed above her head. She jiggled her feet, feeling antsy when a door opened, giving her a glimpse into a dimly lit hallway. She saw movement at its far end. It was a guard leading a few prisoners toward the room. They were all dressed in jeans and blue linen shirts. Horace came into view. Last in line, she sat up eagerly. He squinted into the room in confusion, and when his eyes landed on Lynette, his face didn't break into a big smile like she'd been expecting. He looked terrified. Lynette's heart sank as her father approached. His cheeks were gaunt, his eyes wide and bloodshot. She saw that his hands shook, giving him the demeanor of a young boy scolded. What had they done to him? Horace slowly took a seat. His eyes scanned the room nervously. Lynette tried to ignore his odd behavior. She took his hand and said she was so happy to see him. She hoped her words would pull him back into reality, that he'd wrap his arms around her like he used to. But instead, he said he'd asked her not to come for a reason. She didn't belong there. She had to leave immediately. He sounded exactly like her Auntie Nina. Why was everyone always telling her that? Of course she should be there with him. He was her father. She felt anger twist her stomach, and she crossed her arms defiantly. She wasn't going anywhere, she told him. Horace looked past her, fear widening his eyes. Then he slowly leaned forward and wrapped his arms around her. But this wasn't a familiar feeling. His body was so bony, almost skeletal, and his normally cheerful, loving voice sounded panicked as he told her that she wasn't safe here, that there was evil in these halls, 
and it wanted the innocent. He wanted them. Lynette could barely comprehend what he was saying. Horace kept his arms around her and pleaded further, saying the men there killed themselves by the dozen, not because they were sorry about what they'd done, but because they were scared of Walter. Lynette had no idea what her father was talking about. Who was Walter? She also didn't understand what Horace meant by innocent. Instead, Lynette whispered to him that he was innocent. Then she hugged him tighter. Horace quietly sobbed in her arms. He admitted to Lynette what her auntie had always said, that he was a scoundrel and a murderer. But not her. Walter would want her. Then Horace cried out in panic. He began to hyperventilate, his grip around her tightening. Suddenly, strong hands pulled them apart. Horace screamed at Lynette that she shouldn't be here to get out. Lynette didn't even realize she was crying until she felt the tears run down her chin. The prison guards hauled her father down the dim hall, and Lynette watched as he was swallowed by darkness. She felt a guard take her hand and lead her to the door. She was in shock, trembling from head to toe. By the time she came out of her daze, she smelled must. She had not been led outside, but to a dark corridor. The guard beside her was quiet. He wasn't wearing a uniform, but a blue-collared shirt and blue jeans. The same outfit as her father. Lynette felt panic seize her. He wasn't a guard. He was a prisoner. The man told her not to be scared. He knew her father. He visited him each night and had heard all about Horace's beautiful and sweet daughter. It was nice to finally meet someone good, the man said. And then he grabbed her shoulders and leaned in close. He told her that the devil said she was perfect for his collection. She'd be numbered two. And then he began to laugh. Fear dulled Lynette's senses and dread churned like bile in her stomach. She turned to run, but she felt the man's hands around her neck. He was gentle at first. He whispered in her ear that he was sorry, and he appreciated her sacrifice. Better you than me, he told her. Lynette's heart pounded, and she struggled, but his grip tightened. Her last thought, as her vision dimmed, was that everyone was right. She shouldn't have come. After Ernest Austin's death in 1913, the guards and inmates of Bago Road Jail would warn newcomers about Austin's sinister mission for Satan. He is said to walk through walls, stalk corridors, and even kill prisoners in their cells. There have been about a hundred prisoner deaths at Bago Road Jail over the years, many of them suicides. Perhaps inmates wanted to escape the bleak prospect of spending the rest of their days in Bago Road. Or maybe they wanted to spare themselves a visit from Ernest Austin. Some suggest that the legend of Austin's devilish ghost was actually just a way to haze new inmates. One former jail employee claimed that every few years, an older inmate dared a younger one to take a look into the A-wing at night. If they did, 
they might see the stocky outline of an inmate searching each cell for that rare, innocent soul. Coming up, a wedding planner will do anything to make Bago Road the perfect venue. Now back to the story. The original part of the jail, Number 1 Division, was repurposed in the 1970s and then gradually demolished. Meanwhile, the building that housed Number 2 Division remained a functioning jail until the 1980s, when a controversial report exposed the jail's unsavory living conditions to the world. It seemed that Bago Road hadn't updated their holding methods since the 1800s. They allowed almost no visitors, had no plumbing in certain sections, and housed their isolation cells underground in a virtual dungeon. On top of that, there was notable corruption in the prison guard system. In response to the report, the jail was shut down for the first time in over a century, and the remaining inmates were transferred to prisons around Queensland. But it's possible that not all of the jail's residents left when it closed, especially not if they were trapped there, eagerly awaiting their ticket to freedom. Henry turned a page too quickly, wincing as the prison pamphlet sliced his thumb. He sucked on the cut, the iron taste of blood filling his mouth as he hurried to try to keep up with Lisa and Todd. They were touring the famous A-wing of Bago Road Jail as a potential wedding venue, and they certainly weren't going to wait for him. Henry was an aspiring wedding planner, and Lisa and Todd were his first clients. He was only 21, so he knew he had a long way to go. But being a wedding planner had always been his dream. It wasn't the event part of the weddings that he loved. It was what they represented. Two people coming together to start their lives as soulmates. And Henry felt like facilitating that moment was truly the most meaningful thing he could do with his life. What was more pure than true love? But Lisa and Todd weren't exactly what he'd imagined his first clients would be like. The stereotype of a bridezilla was certainly true with Lisa. Demanding, yet indecisive. But Todd was worse. He kept changing the guest list, which changed the venue, which changed everything. And he got angry at Henry for not keeping up with his constant edits. They kept saying how they wanted to wow their guests, to put on a wedding that no one else had ever been to. That's how Todd came up with the idea of getting married at Bago Road Jail. No one would expect it. Henry tried to tell them that wasn't what a wedding was about. Did they really want to start their new life at a place where so many had ended? But that was exactly what they wanted. And though it went against everything Henry loved about weddings, it was his job to make it special at all costs. Lisa swung open an old cell door and waved her phone's light into the dark. Henry winced. He tried to imagine it dressed up with some twinkle lights wrapped around the bars or something. But the darkness of the jail felt like it was closing in on him. He suggested they look at the prison yard instead for the ceremony site. But Todd ignored him, pointing out the cell's pornographic graffiti to Lisa with a smirk. Henry looked around, trying to find something more wedding-y. Just then, Lisa pointed to a trap door on the gantry floor. She said she bet that was the old gallows. They could get a stunt person to drop through, she suggested. 
Or a real person, Todd said. He asked Henry to volunteer. It could be cocktail hour entertainment. Henry sighed. Everything they wanted seemed so macabre and anti-love. Getting married here felt wrong. He tried to picture the cells being used as a seating area, or, God forbid, the bridal suite. He shuddered. Think. Think, he told himself. Henry knew how to make things special, how to help love come through. And he knew he could make this place feel a little less tainted. It was just a huge challenge, that's all. He took a breath and suggested the band could play by the old gallows with some guests dancing below. But Lisa interrupted to say she didn't think Henry was on the same page as them and to come find them when he had an idea that would really wow them. Henry nodded, trying not to let tears sting his eyes. Jeez, he was blowing it. Lisa and Todd disappeared around the corner, leaving Henry by the gallows. He looked around for more inspiration, taking in the bleak concrete walls. It smelled like rotten eggs in here. Maybe a little more light would help him get some thoughts flowing. He flipped on a switch beside the cell door. But the light bulb above him burst, raining down glass from the ceiling. Shocked, Henry covered his head with his arms. He looked up at the broken bulb, panicked. Great. First, he'd managed to upset his first and only clients. Now, he was destroying a heritage site. But the window near the ceiling of the jail did let in a little bit of light, showing the floating motes of dust in the air. It was, well, kind of pretty. Henry could briefly picture a series of dim lanterns lining the walkway, a string orchestra playing on the steps. It could be real 1920s romantic, now that he thought about it. His excitement grew. He could finally see it. Someone was breathing in the shadows behind him. Henry's stomach flipped in surprise. It was too dark to make out who it was. A man's laughter echoed around him. And Henry relaxed. It must be Todd, hiding in the dark, laughing at him with Lisa. Right? Just then, Henry heard Todd and Lisa's voices down the corridor. They were far away, but it was unmistakably them. He could hear Todd's condescending tone and Lisa's pitching ideas. But if they were over there, who was with him? The laughter resonated around him again. But this time, it sounded downright sinister. It was followed by a man's voice. He told Henry he'd been watching him. He'd seen how hopeful and earnest he was. You're a good person, the voice said. Henry stammered out a thanks, his hands beginning to tremble. He was trying to place the voice. Was it the prison manager? It didn't sound like the guy he spoke to at the gate. Then he felt a hand on his shoulder. It was ice cold and strong. His eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness so that he could make out the outline of the man. He was on the short side and seemed stocky. He wasn't the manager, and certainly not Todd. Henry didn't like the way his hand was gripping him tighter and tighter, but he didn't want to be rude, especially not if this was someone associated with the venue. They'd have to work together. So Henry stepped back slowly and suggested to the stranger that they chat outside, 
he made his way toward the gantry stairs without waiting for an answer. The gallows were just ahead, bathed in the light from the window above, like a spotlight. Henry knew the stairs were just beyond them. He crossed the trapdoor. All of a sudden, the trapdoor swung open and Henry plunged through. He could barely process what was happening before he slammed into the concrete below. He felt the smack of force, but only numbness followed. He tried to lift himself back up, but his limbs were splayed out, broken and useless around him. He looked up, unable to move. Above him, a figure leaned over the trapdoor from the upper walkway. He could see the man fully in the light. He was stocky and dressed in a blue-collared shirt and jeans. Henry gasped for help, but the man just smiled. He introduced himself as Walter and told Henry that he was sorry, but he knew Henry wouldn't mind. Not really. Walter had seen how hard Henry worked to please other people, and Henry would be happy to know he'd pleased Walter very much. He was the perfect fourth soul. Henry's vision was growing dim. He was vaguely aware of a puddle of blood spreading around his head. Was that coming from him? He vaguely wondered what Lisa and Todd might say when they found his body lying there. But then he realized that they'd love it. Getting married at the place where their wedding planner perished was the best thing he could have done for his clients. He'd given them the wedding of their dreams. The number two division of Bago Road Jail has since been preserved as a heritage site. Today, it functions as a museum and tourist attraction. But the location is also available for weddings and events. On their website, they boast that few venues can truly make an impact, like the towering cell blocks and imposing walls of the jail. Weddings are typically symbolic of a hopeful future, the direct antithesis of what Bago Road Jail has become. There hasn't been much renovation or upkeep since it closed. It lies there, a carcass of the past, rotting as age picks away at its crumbling red bricks and rusting gates. But before it was a relic of history, the jail was something else entirely. Prisons are supposed to separate the guilty from the innocent. In reality, however, many innocents sit behind bars while the guilty walk free, never having to answer for their crimes. Maybe now the ghosts of Bago Road Jail act as a second jury. Long after an inmate has been convicted, the spirits determine the guilt or innocence of those who enter. Only in this case, being guilty is what saves your soul. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. 
with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Greg Polson.